Amen. Amen. So good. Well, this passage in Acts chapter 2, if you've not read the Bible before, if you don't really know much about the scriptures, it's actually a really famous passage. Uh, The end of Acts chapter 2 really describes what the early church looks like in that moment. It's the snapshot uh, of how the early church is following Jesus and how God is saving people and they're praying together and they're worshiping together and they're meeting together. And it's this really beautiful passage of scripture, so much so that sometimes you'll hear pastors or people in the church world say that we want to be an Acts 2 kind of church. And what they mean is everything you just heard read over you, we want to be that kind of church. And to that I'll always say amen, but my point is always going to be if you look past Acts 3, what you're always going to find really quickly is that this church, this really perfect snapshot we have in Acts chapter 2, actually starts to show some cracks and some problems as you continue through the book of Acts. And so I want to remind you what I said a couple weeks ago, that our goal in studying the book of Acts and our goal in talking about this is not to be just like the early church. The goal isn't that we would be just like the first century church, because we don't have their problems and we don't have their same issues. We don't live in their context. So we want to learn from the early church. We want to study the book of Acts. We want to see the same God that interacted in that time that interacts in our time. But our goal is not to be just like the early church. Listen, our goal is to be a faithful church in our generation, to be a faithful church in our city, to be a faithful church in 2021 in Westlake Village in the Conejo Valley in Southern California in the United States of America. That's our goal, to be this faithful iteration of the church of Jesus Christ in our generation to the praise and the glory of God the Father. That's what we want to do here. So when we look back to the book of Acts, we're not looking at the perfect church that we're trying to emulate. We're looking back to see what God did in the early church. And we want to ask ourselves this question as we wrap up our series tonight. Why is it that the people in the early church behaved, followed Jesus, loved one another, and loved God in the way they did? And what I want to point you toward tonight is one little verse, one little word, that if you weren't listening closely when we read the scripture, you would have just skipped right over this. In fact, I think a lot of people, when they look at this passage, just skip right over this word. And I want to show this to you tonight in verse 43. I want to show you up here on the screen. It says this. It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. What's clear in the Gospels and what's clear in the book of Acts is that the ministry surrounding Jesus was filled with miracles, with signs and with wonders, with miraculous, supernatural things happening all over the place. And those supernatural things were meant to validate or were meant to confirm what Jesus had spoken about himself. And it says here that there's many wonders and signs that are being performed by the apostles. And how does the early church respond to those wonders and signs? It says they are filled with awe. They're stunned. There's reverence. They're incredibly aware that God is among them. The reality of God sits heavily on their life rather than sits lightly on their life. Like in other words, when they come together as a church or when they get together in each other's homes or when they're breaking bread, they're not just sort of aware of God's presence. They're overwhelmed with a sense of God's presence to the point where the New International Version that we heard out of tonight and you have on the screen says that they were filled with awe. As always, I want to try to drill in on words like this. This word awe in the original Greek language is the word phobos. The word phobos will be really familiar to you if you've ever heard of a phobia or all the different things we tag the word phobia onto the end of. It is fear. It is dread. It is terror. The older translations of this text will say that all the apostles 
or all the people surrounding the apostles, the early church, they were filled with fear. Filled with fear. And here's my contention tonight. If we want to live out this kind of faithful gospel ministry that God has for our church, for our ministry in this season of your life and of our church and of our world, we are going to, be need, we are going to need to be filled with this same kind of phobos, this same kind of fear. Tonight I want to talk to you about what it might mean for your life to be filled with this kind of phobos, this kind of fear this kind of fear that drives us, this kind of fear that is present in the early church. And if this is confusing you or making you kind of uncomfortable, what does he mean by fear? I want to spend the rest of my night unpacking why I believe this phobos that existed in the midst of this early church, this fear, actually drove them to a faithful kind of gospel ministry in the church and a faithful living and loving like Jesus in their own life. Here's why I believe this was the case. I believe this is the case because of a principle I've taught before here in this room, in other rooms. Some of you have heard me say this before. I'll repeat this for the rest of my life. I believe this is true. That whatever you fear most will control you. If you're taking notes, write that down. Whatever I fear most will control me. I put it this way throughout my life. That fear is not just an emotion you feel. It's something that drives you toward behavior. So, so like my wife, if you were to ask her, what is she most afraid of in this world? It would not take her any seconds at all to say snakes. She hates snakes. She can't stand snakes. She doesn't like to think about snakes or talk about snakes. Like the other night we were doing something. I'm about to say what we were doing and I'm going to sound very middle-aged parent, okay? Her and I were watching Survivor, okay? It, yeah, this happened, okay? It's like she threw out the idea. I said, yes, we got into it. It's a thing. I don't know why. Okay, different sermon. Okay, anyway, we're watching and suddenly the snake pops out of the jungle and she's just like terrified and she turns around and it's on the TV, right? It's not gonna pop out of our TV to her, but what? She's terrified. And whatever she fear most controls her. Like we're never as a family gonna do a hike in Wildwood Park. This hike happening on Monday morning, my wife will never attend. Why? That's where the snakes live. When we go on vacation to like Hawaii, we'll be in the ocean. She'll stay on the sand. Why? Because of the sea snakes, right? When we lived on a second floor apartment, we had to keep the windows closed in case the snakes slithered up and came into our windows. It was like this fear wasn't just a feeling for her. It controlled things in her life. The same is true of you if you're terrified, let's say of spiders. It's not snakes for you, it's spiders because those things creep you out. So if you ever open up like a dusty old closet, you will not be the first one in there because spiders are going to come find you. Let's say you're terrified, like let's say you're 25 years old and you're still like terrified of the dark, okay? And so at night you have like a little nightlight because why? Because whatever you fear most controls you. Like the thing you fear in life is not just an emotion you feel. This is what you have to get tonight. Fear is always something that controls us. It drives us. It changes our behavior. And listen, it's funny to talk about it when it's snakes or the dark or spiders. But you know what some of you fear more than anything else in this world? conflict. You're terrified of conflict. So you never say no to anyone that you should say no to. You never set boundaries. You never actually speak your mind. You never actually stand up for yourself because you're so scared of conflict that that drives you toward always giving in, always saying yes, always getting run over because whatever you fear most will control you. For some of you, some experiences in life, some wounds and some stories that you could tell me have led you to be terrified of being betrayed. So the thing you never want in your life is to be betrayed. And the easiest way to never be betrayed is never have an intimate friendship with anyone and never get close enough that someone could wound you. Because whatever you fear most controls you. 
Like for some of you, your biggest fear is being embarrassed, like being the one called out, being in an awkward situation. For some of you, like the awkward turtle moment of your life is the moment you are just building your entire superstructure of your life to avoid. So you just never want to get to a place where you're ever in an awkward or embarrassing or uncomfortable situation. Listen, for some of you, the thing you fear most is the opinion of your mother. And so everything you do and everything you say is just shaped around whether or not she's going to have some comment and it's not going to be bold and in your face. It's going to be subtle, right? Like she's going to slide it in there, but you're terrified of her opinion of you. And you're just living your whole life to make sure she never disapproves. Why? Because fear is not just an emotion we feel. Fear is something that governs us. It changes us. It shapes us. And my contention to you tonight is this, that the Acts chapter 2 church lived in the way they did because this phobos, this fear existed among them. And what I'm convinced of is that for the Acts chapter 2 church, they understood that whatever they feared most would control them. And for them, what they feared most is captured perfectly in Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10, where it says these words, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, here's what the earliest church understood. That the thing to fear most in this world is not the opinions of others, it's not awkward situations, it's not confrontation, it's not being uncomfortable, that God is to be feared above all else. And here's what the scripture actually says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like, do you want to live a life where you're wise? That's filled with meaning and purpose, that's filled with something that makes a difference in this world? If you want the kind of life that matters in this world, if you want to live the kind of life that leads a legacy, it always begins with the fear of the Lord, with a fear of God. Now let me explain. Because every time we talk about the fear of the Lord or fear of God, there's this kind of uncomfortable juxtaposition that we have where we believe that God is love and we're supposed to love God. And yet I'm standing here suggesting that the beginning of any meaning or purpose in your life is you fearing God. And I believe those two things are not in conflict. They sit perfectly well with one another. But I want to make sure no one hits the eject button on that word and takes the easy out. Since the preachers are famous for pointing to this saying, the fear of the Lord, and then they go, it doesn't mean you're supposed to fear the Lord. It means you're supposed to respect him. You're supposed to be nice. You're supposed to be honoring of him. And I believe all of those things are true. You should respect God and you should honor God. But there's a Hebrew word for respect and there's a Hebrew word for honor and it's not this one. This one says we fear the Lord. So you want us to understand that the fear of the Lord is not something that is in conflict with our love of God. Rather, it's something that fits perfectly together. Let, let me give you an analogy to help you understand. If you've always wrestled with what does it mean to fear God and love him at the same time, I'll give you an image, an analogy. It's an imperfect image and it's an imperfect analogy, but let me try to help you in this way. I want you to imagine you and your buddies are sitting around a campfire. Now, I pulled this off like stockphotos.com, all right? So these fellas are like, hey, a fire, right? You're sitting around a campfire. Let's think about this for a moment. Isn't it mysterious how every time we sit around a campfire, like we're drawn toward it? Like usually when you're sitting around a campfire, you're not staring off at something else. Like your eyes are on the fire. You're oriented toward the fire. You sit around the fire like this. Like there's something about a fire that actually draws us toward it. It actually invites us in. And yet here's what every one of you knows if you've ever gone camping. Like you don't mess around with the fire. Like you might have a stick and kind of poke at it. But when you're around the fire, you're kind of aware. 
And if the fire's here, you're not like jumping around, laughing, whatever. You know that there's a danger there. You have this fear of this fire that says, it's not just gonna jump out of the pit and randomly consume me. But I also have this awareness that this fire has a lot more power to harm me than I have to harm it. That's what we have when we get around fire. And the reason I think this image of fire is so beautiful when it comes to fearing the Lord is that all the way back in one of the most foundational stories of the Bible, the story of Moses, if you grew up in church, you know this story that Moses encounters God and he encounters it in a burning bush. He encounters the presence of God in a burning bush in the flame of fire. And here's why I think this helps us tonight. I want us to understand this truth about fire, that fire is simultaneously inviting and terrifying, right? Like when you're around a fire, you're drawn into it. You see it. You want to be around it. It gives you light. It gives you warmth. It allows you to cook food. Like fire is this wonderful thing we've gathered around for as long as there's been humans. But it's also terrifying. It's terrifying because we know if we get too close to it in certain ways, it could cause more harm to us than we can to it. We understand that fire, if it got out of control and out of our ability to control it, could actually consume an entire forest or a city. See, we understand that fire is simultaneously inviting and terrifying. And can I invite you to see God in exactly the same way that the Lord is simultaneously inviting and terrifying? He is inviting. His love draws you in. He wants you to be around him. He wants you to gaze upon him. He wants you to love him and treasure him and delight in him. And yet God also wants you to fear him. God wants your love to never get you to a point where you think you can control God or manipulate God or where somehow you're as big or as strong as God. And here's what I've discovered. I've discovered, and maybe you've discovered this in yourself too, that almost everyone struggles with one or the other. Like for some of you, God is entirely terrifying. Like he's just this big, distant God, and you would never use the word intimacy or proximity or closeness to describe your relationship with him. So he's big and he's strong and he created the universe, but he wants nothing to do with a sinner like you. And if that's you tonight, I want you to know that there's a God who is inviting. He invites you toward him. He says, come get to know me. Come experience my presence. Come be near to me. See, some of you struggle with the idea that God is inviting. But then others of you, and I think this is probably more true in our culture. So I don't know that this is true of everyone here, but I think it's more true in our day struggle with the ideas that God is terrifying. So, so Jesus is just like this kind of like, like there's shirts a while ago that said like, Jesus is my homeboy. It's like, he's just like my pal, my friend, my buddy, like my, my, my little lucky charm I carry around with me. And Jesus is like the sweet baby lamb, Jesus, who would never harm anyone and he's never scary to anyone. And yet every single time in the Bible that God makes himself manifest to a human being, they fall down on their face and they want to die. It's not like they look at God and they're like, oh, I'm supposed to be afraid. You know, it's not like they see him and they're just like, I'm going to die. That's what I want for us to recognize. Like, I think if we saw God face to face for five seconds in this room, it would just like rattle us to the core. And listen, that fear doesn't have to do with punishment. Child of God, all your punishment was dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. That fear has to do with the fact that God is God and I am not. And so again, just like fire is simultaneously inviting and terrifying, I want us to believe in and fear a God who is at the same time inviting us in, but also who we know is not to be messed with. He's not to be mocked. He's not to be belittled. He is the God of the universe. And with the breath of his mouth, the entire universe came into existence. I want us to understand that God is a God to be feared. 
Because once that phobos, once that fear exists inside of our life and our mind and our heart and in our community here at YA, God starts to do miraculous things. But if we have somehow come to a faith in God that involves no fear of him, I'm just so troubled that we're not actually worshiping the God of the Bible. We're worshiping an idol of the 21st century, of this God who's puny and small, and we have nothing to fear in him. Like, let me put it to you this way tonight, to every single person listening to my voice in this room or online. If you have no fear of the Lord, you do not really know the Lord. If you have no fear of God, you do not really know God. Because again, every single time someone in the Bible encounters the presence of God, they're terrified. They fall down as if they're going to die. They say, I am undone. I cannot stand in your presence. But then over and over and over again, if you've read the Bible, here's what you know. In that moment, either an angel or God says, no, 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 don't be afraid. Here's the paradox about the fear of God. When you fear God, God reaches down to you and says, do not be afraid. How beautiful is that? When I'm someone who fears God, God reaches down and says, do not be afraid. But if I am a stubborn, hard-hearted man who says, I do not fear you, God, you do not intimidate me, then I have every reason to be afraid of God. If you do not have any fear of God, you don't actually know the God of the Bible. If your worship of God, if your reverence for God, if your prayers to God, if your study of the word doesn't involve any fear of who God is, you're worshiping a God of your imagination, not the God who is actually there. Now, here's why this matters for us tonight. Again, I want to draw us back to Acts chapter 2. This early church had this phobos, this fear that was that God was around us and God is in the midst of us and he is not to be messed with. And yet my contention is that very fear is what drove them to do all the things we heard about earlier that we'll see in this passage. That very fear is what drove them to meet together and pray together and evangelize and believe the Bible and believe all that God was saying. And here's why I think this is the case. Because I want you to understand that the direction of your fear will determine the depth of your faith. Let me say that again. The direction of your fear will determine the depth of your faith. And what I want for everyone in this room, what I want for those of you online, what I want for everyone in our community is to have depth of faith. That in the midst of crisis, in the midst of political turmoil, in the midst of pandemics, in the midst of all of the insanity as the world today, that you have this depth, this roots of faith that make you firm in the midst of everything that's happening. And I'm convinced that the only way you will have depth of faith is if you choose to aim your fear in the right direction. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by the direction of your fear? I'm just convinced you don't get to live a life where there's no fear whatsoever. In fact, I think you will fear something. Whatever you fear most will control you assumes you're going to fear something. And in the Bible, you only get two options of what to fear. All throughout the scripture, there's this phrase, there's this dichotomy, there's this idea that you get to fear two things and you, you can pick one of them. And here's what it is. There's the fear of man and there's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is what I've been discussing. It's this fear, this reverence, this ability to look at God and say, God is who God is. God is strong. He is mighty. He is big. And I am so tiny that I cannot harm God. I cannot control God. He is in control and I am not. This is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord says, one day I will give an account of my life, not to any other human being, but to the one who sits on the throne. I fear him over all else. And the Bible contrasts the fear of the Lord with the fear of man, the fear of other people. 
The fear of people's opinions, the fear of what they think of you, the fear of what they'll say of you, the fear of man, this idea that you're afraid of what other people's opinions are gonna be is not a 20th or 21st century concept. It goes all the way back to the Bible. And all the way back in the Bible, God understood that people live in such a way that they look for everyone else's approval rather than God's approval. And the great question of your life on whether or not you will have depth of faith is this one. Will you fear the Lord? Or will you fear everyone else's opinions about you? Because that question and how you answer it with your life will determine the depth of your faith. I wanna show you four examples of this in the text that we read tonight in Acts chapter two. I wanna show you how this plays out practically. It starts in Acts chapter two, verse 42. It says these words. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So it just begins with this, they, the church, the people who were making up the church of Jesus Christ, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now what's the apostles' teaching? The apostles were the original 12 who followed Jesus. We read earlier how they had to replace one of the apostles so that there were 12 of them. And they were communicating the truth about Jesus. Here's what Jesus taught. Here's how Jesus died on the cross. Here's how he rose from the dead for our sins. This was the apostles' teaching. And ultimately, the apostles' teaching was written down. And it was written down on documents, and those documents were eventually put together into what we call the New Testament, the New Testament of the Bible. So ultimately, when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, this is them devoting themselves to the Bible. And I want you to know how radical and countercultural this was for them. They were in the midst of a Jewish world where no one believed that Jesus could possibly be God incarnate. There were so many people rejected the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, It made them unpopular. It made them hated. They got beaten. They got arrested. They got mocked. They got expelled from their synagogues. They got thrown in jail, and some of them were murdered. This happened in the early church. They were so committed to the teaching of the Bible that they were willing for it to cost them everything. And you know what's wild? This still happens all over the world today. Uh, Like as a church, we get to invest in different ministries that are happening all over the planet. And some of those ministries we get to talk about really publicly. And some of those ministries we give hundreds of thousands of dollars to, and we don't talk about it publicly. Because if we talk about what country it is on the internet, those countries will come hunt us down and harm Christians who are in that country. Countries that are closed. Countries that are aggressive toward Christians. Countries where I've talked about people who have been jailed for five years for baptizing someone in their home, for believing the truth of the Bible. Child of God, I need you to know that you have brothers and sisters all over the world who are suffering, who are dying, who are being imprisoned and beaten and martyred for the sake of the apostles' teaching, for the sake of the truths of the scriptures. And I want to frame it this way because I want us to understand that if we want to fear God, if we want to walk in this same kind of faithfulness and be a faithful man or woman of God in 2021, to be a faithful church here at Calvary Community Church, We are going to have to believe the teaching of the Bible. And I want to ask this question. It's not true of everyone, but it is true of enough Christians that I need to ask this question out loud. Here's the question. Why don't we trust the teaching of the Bible? Why don't we trust it? Why do we believe it? Why do we toss out verses that seem inconvenient to us? Why don't we give everything and willing to risk everything for the sake of the teaching of the Bible? Why don't we trust the teaching of the Bible? And again, the answer, for those who don't, and the answer in my worst moments where I don't trust the teaching of the Bible is this, it's because we're afraid. We're afraid. 
The reason we do not trust the teaching of the Bible is that we're afraid. Here's just a few things we might be afraid of. One, uh, of of criticism and name-calling. Like you think if you believe what the Bible teaches, you're going to be called names. You're going to be criticized. And for some of you, your big fear in life is being criticized. You don't want anyone to ever criticize you. And so you don't want to say what you believe about the Bible because you're afraid someone's going to criticize you. Or they're going to call you narrow-minded or bigoted or terrible or old-fashioned. You're so terrified of being called names that you actually won't believe the Bible You're being afraid of name call. You're afraid of not being accepted in polite society. So there's this kind of culture we've created where everyone kind of believes the same things and you want to be accepted at your school or in your college or in your workplace. And I get that. No one wants to be alone. But for some of you, your fear of being alone actually outweighs your fear of God. And I want to call you tonight to say, listen, being alone stinks. Offending God and denying what he says is true is even worse. Like to say, I fear being alone. I fear being rejected, but I don't fear that more than I fear God. Listen, we're afraid. We're afraid of name calling. We're afraid of not being accepted. We're afraid of being lumped in with those Christians. You know, there's actually some of you who believe the truths of the Bible and you believe what the Bible teaches, but you're actually afraid if you say you believe what the Bible teaches, you'll get lumped in with some other kind of Christian that you're embarrassed of. And all of us have those other Christians that we're like, we're like the cool Christians and they're the weird ones, right? And so we point to them, we're like, those people. I'm not like those Christians. And some of you will actually be afraid to believe what the Bible says because you're just so afraid of getting lumped in with someone else. Like your greatest fear is actually the fear of association with someone you don't like politically, ideologically, socially, morally. And you're so afraid of being lumped in that you'll actually deny what the Bible teaches. And again, Do you see how quickly your fear drives you to behavior? It's not just a feeling you feel. It's something that drives and dictates and controls your life because whatever you fear most will control you. Can I show you what it looks like? Here's what it looks like to fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord means, it means resolving to believe things that will make you uncomfortable in our culture. And here's what I want for all of you. I just want you to resolve at some point that you are not gonna fit in perfectly to 21st century American culture. You're just not going to fit into everything your college or grad school professor says. You're not going to fit in with what all the Instagram influencers say, and hallelujah for that, right? Like, you're just not going to fit in with this culture that's been created around you. And the only other alternative to this, to determining that you're just not going to fit in with everyone and some people are going to misunderstand or not like you, is you determining that 2021 American culture is the pinnacle of worldview and morality in world history. Anyone want to argue that? Anyone want to argue that we have arrived? No one's going to argue that. And so what you've got to do is say, listen, morality and worldview is going to keep changing. This whole belief system is going to change around me. And I'm just going to fit uncomfortably in it. Can I raise the temperature in the room? I think if you believe what the Bible says about sex and bodies, you're not going to fit well with the progressive liberal culture. You're just not going to. You never will. Whatever that culture, that subculture that you're a part of that you so badly want their approval, it'll never work. But let me go ahead and go the other way too. Because I think if you believe what the Bible says about justice, about widows, about orphans, about the foreigner, about immigrants, you're never gonna fit in perfectly with conservative culture. It's never gonna happen. So listen, like as, as children of God, it's our job to just say we're not gonna fit in perfectly with the ideologies of this world. 
We're just not going to fit in with the people who want to draw us into one way or the other. We're not going to fit in perfectly with pop culture. We're just going to kind of be weird and we're going to be different. But you resolve to do that because my fear of God is greater than my fear of their disapproval. My fear of God is greater than my fear of being alone or ostracized. My fear of God is bigger than my fear of being called names or being misunderstood or being lumped in with some Christian that I don't agree with fully. See, listen to me. If we're going to fear God, we're going to devote ourselves like this early church did to the apostles' teaching, to the words of the scripture, to the truth of the scripture. And if you want to have depth of faith in 2021, you've just got to decide at some point you're not going to fit in. And that's okay. That's a good thing. It goes on this way in the back half of verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You'll see what's happening here. There's fellowship. They're hanging out together. This is the Greek word koinonia. When I was a child, my mom went to her koinonia class, and I never had any idea what that meant until I grew up and learned what the word meant. It's fellowship. It's hanging out together. It's spending time together. But it's not just like go to in and out together. It's like what it says here. It's breaking of bread. It's prayer. It's getting to know one another, bearing one another's burdens, loving each other, caring for each other, challenging each other. Like, I think what's being described here in these few sentences, quite frankly, is what we do in small groups here at this church. Like, it is awesome to gather here as a church and to sing and to get yelled at for about 45 minutes and then to sing some more and to hang out late into the night. But this is what happens in small groups. Like fellowship, you get together in a living room, breaking of bread. Hopefully you have like some Cheez-Its or something like that that you're eating. And to prayer. You're praying for one another. You're reading the Bible. You're hanging out with one another. You're challenging one another. This is what happens in the midst of small groups. And when I say small groups, I don't mean you have to be involved in the Calvary small group program. I think that's an awesome way of being involved in it. And if you've got no place you're plugged in, I'm going to challenge you this fall to plug into a small group here or at a church somewhere else where you go. But listen to me. It is being involved with some group of Christians somewhere that will challenge you, that will pray for you, that will be with you, that will lean in with you to fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers. And yet here's what I've become just noticed. I think some of you do this. Some of you are amazing at this. Some of you have men and women in your life who challenge you and are with you and are in with everything. It's completely in together. But then there's some of you. There's some of you who have decided you're just not gonna be in with anyone. There's no one you really fellowship with. You hang out with people, but there's no fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. And here's the question. Why don't we live in this kind of biblical community? Why don't we actually live the same way where we just kind of have people in our lives constantly praying for us, challenging us, with us. We expose and open our lives to them. And here's the answer. The answer is because we're afraid. We're afraid. Like the real reason we don't live in biblical community like the Bible calls us to is because we're afraid. What are we afraid of? We're afraid of being embarrassed. Because if you have to admit that you're actually struggling with your faith, if you have to admit that you haven't prayed since last Sunday, if you have to admit that you're struggling with alcohol or you're struggling with porn, that's embarrassing. And you don't want to be embarrassed. You want everyone to think you're this good, solid Christian who's got everything together. We're afraid of being embarrassed. Listen, we're afraid of being hurt or let down. For some of you, it's like the intimacy thing. Like your fear of being betrayed is so high that you would rather be alone and have no one in your life than step out in faith into a small group, get known, and then get let down by some other human being. Like your fear of that, your fear of being betrayed just drives you away. For some of you, your fear is actually the fear of being challenged or confronted. 
And so like your whole life, you've just kind of lived with certain habits, certain practices, certain attitudes, and you don't want anyone to challenge those because those are actually sacred and held close to you. And so you're terrified of someone confronting you. And so you've built a whole apparatus in your life where no one ever gets to confront you. No one ever gets to challenge you. No one ever gets to push you. No one ever gets to say, you know, you say that, but I don't think you actually believe that. No one ever gets to say, hey, I notice how you treat people, and I don't think that's actually okay. You're so afraid of that, that you'll actually step out of the biblical community that God gives to us as a gift. Because whatever you fear most will control you. And here's what fearing the Lord looks like. Fearing the Lord looks like sharing your life to the point where it feels uncomfortable. Sharing your life to the point where it feels uncomfortable, where people get access to your life, where people can challenge you, where people actually know about you. Some of you have this whole Christian facade up, but if I poked through the Christian facade, I would see all kinds of rot behind that that you don't want anyone to see. And for some of you, you're so scared of someone seeing that rot behind it. And I need to just plead with you, like as the pastor of this ministry, I promise there's rot inside of me, there's rot inside of everyone. And so if you would just get over this fear of someone's going to find me out, listen, the cross already found you out, right? Like Jesus wouldn't have had to die if you weren't a sinner. He died. He already called you out as a sinner. There's no hiding here. If you're in the room, if you're listening online, you are a sinner. And God loves you anyway. He is for you and he is with you. And we gather in small groups and communities and prayer groups together because we want to drag that stuff before the Lord. Not in this kind of pride that says I've got it all together but in this kind of place where we're sharing about our lives to the point where it makes us uncomfortable, to the point where we're actually stepping out in faith. Because at the point where you step out in faith, it makes you uncomfortable. But that's the place where you actually begin to grow. Two more examples, verse 43. It's the verse we've kind of gone with the whole time, that everyone was filled with awe and the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That awe is that word phobos. In verse 44, it says, the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had in need. It was this wild kind of generosity that was going on in the early church. Like you imagine this, someone's like, hey, uh, I know they have a need and she's hungry and he's going to need this since he needs some help. And so I'm going to sell my house over there and give the proceeds to you. And you might think that sounds crazy, but I want you to understand that over the years I've ministered at this church, there have been men and women and families who have done the exact same thing who have literally sold pieces of property and brought the money to the church and said, how can we invest this for the kingdom? Who have literally sold cars or sold businesses or sold assets they have to say, how can we use this money to advance the good news of Jesus, to serve the poor, to give money to mission endeavors all over the world? Like people still do this to this day. And this is so crazy for us to get our mind around, especially in this room, because I always understand when I talk to this room, like the asset level in this room is about here, right? Okay? This is not like the money room. This is not the rich room. This is not like that we've made it in our 401. Some of you are like, what is a 401k, right? Like, this is not the room for that. And yet here's the problem. The problem is you think because my money level is down here, this isn't really for me. And I just want to constantly challenge you that if you don't give when your money level is here, there is no chance you're giving when it's up here. It never happens. So here's my question. Why don't we give generously? Like this room, I'm not talking about some Christian out there. I'm not talking about a theoretical Christian. Us. A couple hundred of us in this room listening online. Why don't we give generously? Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you just give generously and this isn't for you, it's for someone else. But here's the question. Why don't we live, give generously? What's the answer? It's the same two words. We're afraid. We're afraid. 
Listen, some of you are so afraid, like money has such a grip on your heart. You are so afraid of things that you will not even give generously to the work of the Lord or to serving and ministering to those who have less. Like you're afraid of being broke. Like some of you are terrified. Well, if I start giving a lot and then a need comes up in my own life, I'm gonna be broke. And you are so terrified of being broke, you're actually missing out on the greatest blessing in the world, which is giving away your money. Your fear of being broke is driving you to miss out on God's blessing in your life. Listen, some of you are terrified of living without your comforts. So for you, it's like, I know I could give, but then I wouldn't be able to upgrade my iPhone or my shoes or buy that new car or live in that new place. Like your comforts are the thing. And you know they're comforts. You know they're not necessities. You just like your comforts. And your actual big fear in life is being uncomfortable. Like some of you have built an entire apparatus in your life so that you are never uncomfortable physically for any reason. And that has driven you away from one of the greatest blessings in your life, and that's giving away your money. And then finally, some of you are terrified of having to depend on others. You know, some of you don't give generously because you're so afraid that if you give generously, you might actually kind of be in a pinch at some point, and you're going to have to ask your parents for money, and you are so terrified of asking your parents for money that you would rather do anything else in this world than ask your parents for money, and you don't want to depend on anyone because you are a grown man and a grown woman, and I do not need my parents, and I do not need their help, and you've built this whole apparatus in your life so you never need help. And I don't know that that sounds very Christian to me. Like, I think being a believer is saying, you know what, I'm going to be wise and frugal with my money, but I'm going to need help at some point, and someone's going to have to step in. Listen, some of you are so terrified of having to ask for help, so you hoard money, and you hoard possessions. Like, listen to me. I think some of you are so terrified by the lack of money that you don't engage in the greatest blessing you could give in your life. Jesus Christ himself said this, it is better to give than receive. Don't miss that. It is better for you to give money away than to get a paycheck. And if you don't believe that's true, it's because you've never actually done it. You've never actually wrote a check that's bigger than you thought it could be. You've never actually given away money and it scared you a little bit, but it's like, oh, God's gonna use this. So what do I want for you tonight? I want you to fear the Lord. I want you to say, God, I'm really scared of my money situation, but I fear you more than I fear my bank account. And I want you to fear the Lord in this way, that fearing the Lord looks like giving away money to the point where it feels uncomfortable. That's what I want for your life. I want you to decide to give away money. Listen, some of you are already doing this. Like some of you already give away money regularly in your life. You give to the church or you give to the work of the Lord. Maybe you don't even go to this church and you give to a different church. Praise God for that. Tonight is not like the rustle up money from the YA crowd night. Like you just give and I love that. And if that's you already, I want to challenge you to re-up your giving. To reconsider whether your giving's just gotten kind of standard or whether it's actually challenging you. Like my wife and I started doing this thing a couple years ago where anytime we got income that was outside of like our normal paycheck, we would give out of the paycheck, but then we would set aside some of that income into like a generous giving account. And then anytime there was an opportunity where we could support a missionary or someone who was in need or someone who just needed something, we would pull money out of that account. Like just this last week, I encountered this missionary and she was heading off to the, the world to share the gospel. And I was like, awesome. And so we got to stroke a check like right out of that account. Like we set aside money for this very thing. There's no better thing you can do with money than to give it away. And if you are already doing that, I want to encourage you to up your giving, to think about how that works. My wife and I made a commitment a few years ago that every year of our life until we die, we're going to give away more money each year. So every year I look at our tax account or it's our statement. I go, how much do we give away? And then our goal is to give away just a little bit more the next year. And we're going to ramp that up every single year until we die. That's the goal. And then listen, for those of you who don't give anything, and I actually think there are some of you in this room, maybe even a lot of you. Can I just challenge you? Um, I don't know why you don't give. 
I don't know why. Maybe you've been burned by the church and you don't want to give to the church. Okay, find another organization other than the church. Maybe you don't want to give to this church because you think this is some big mega church and you don't want to give your money here. Find another church. Like, listen, my big, my big concern here is not for the church. It's for you. I don't want you to live the kind of life where you never give anything away, where money has grip and fear and control over your life. Can I give you a challenge? I've given some of you this before. If you don't give anything right now currently to your church, whether it's this church or another one, can I encourage you to start giving $1 per week for the next year? $1. $52 for the next year. And if you're like, Brian, I cannot afford $52, make it $1 a month. I promise you, you can find $12 like in your couch cushion, okay? Start giving it away. Start doing that. Make it a recurring thing on your credit card. You're going to give $1 a month. Why am I setting the bar so low? Because I want you to understand that if you have resistance toward $1 a week or $1 a month, the problem isn't you don't have enough money. The problem is somewhere inside of you. And I want to challenge you to be the type of person who gives regularly and faithfully and generously. And if it means starting down here, praise the Lord for that. And again, not saying this because our church really needs your $52 or we won't make it. I'm saying this because if you never give away money for the rest of your life, you won't make it. You will be the one who suffers. You will be the one who struggles. I want you to live a life where you go, God, I fear you more than I fear being broke. I fear you more than I fear having to ask my parents for money. I fear you more than I fear life without my comforts. God, I fear you more than anything else. Final scripture we'll look at tonight. Verse 46, it says, They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Like in other words, God was saving people. God was rescuing people. God was saving people. What, what, what was he doing? What was he using to save people? He was using the church, his people. He was using his people to tell other people about Jesus so they might be saved. We do the sharing, God does the saving. We do the evangelism, God does the rescuing. We do the talking about Jesus and God does the regeneration in people's hearts. That's how it goes. That's how it works in God's economy. And here's the question I wanna ask with, final one we'll look at tonight, is why don't we tell people about Jesus? And again, I'm making the assumption that some of us don't. Maybe some of you do, and you're regularly, constantly sharing your faith, evangelizing, talking about Jesus, sharing about Jesus. You're doing that on your social media. You're doing that in your friendships at work, at school. You're doing it constantly. But if you're tonight, like, listen, that's not me. I'm just not sharing about Jesus. I hope you know the two-word answer for now. The reason you don't is because we're afraid. We're afraid. We're terrified. Why don't we tell people about Jesus? Because we're terrified. What are we terrified of? Well, we're terrified of losing friendships, right? And we're thinking like, I'm going to share my faith with my best friend and they're not going to like it and they're never going to speak to me again. As if that's really a friendship where you're like, here's the most important thing in your life. They're like, I hate you forever. Okay, thanks for being friends, right? It was never a friendship in the first place. We're terrified. We're terrified of losing friendships. We're terrified of awkward moments. Like I said, some of you have built your whole superstructure of your life around making sure there is never an awkward moment. You've got like a bubble of things around you, so there's never a moment where you say, hey, uh, do you know that Jesus loves you? And they stare at you awkwardly, and you just want to melt into a puddle. And I want you to know that until you fear God more than you feel awkward moments, you will never share your faith. You'll never tell people about Jesus. Like again, some of you have this fear, like your actual fear is being one of those weird Christians. 
And so like you see strange Christians walking around with a sign or like a bullhorn or handing out tracks. And for some reason, you just find those Christians weird or off-putting. And you're like, okay, I don't want to be like those weird Christians. So I will never speak the name of Jesus to anyone ever because I don't want to be like them. And all you've done is allow your fear to be not like those people, to dominate your fear of the Lord. And tonight what I want is for you is to fear the Lord above all things. To say, I'm gonna share about Jesus. I'm gonna fear God more than I fear the opinions of others, the awkward moments, the rejection of others. Here's what it looks like. That fearing the Lord means talking about Jesus to the point where it gets uncomfortable. And notice what I said here. Go talk about Jesus. Because you notice every politician and every athlete and celebrity can say, I wanna thank God. But when they say, I wanna thank Jesus, the temperature goes up in the room. Why? Because God's made everything about his beloved son. And that's what I want for your life. Talk about Jesus. Don't live like a functional atheist. When someone asks how your day was, it's okay to say, you know what, God's been really good to me today and here's what I've been praying about and here's what I've been thinking about. You don't have to be in their face. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be abrasive. It's none of that. It's just saying that God is actually the most dominant reality in your life. You fear him more than you fear the opinions of people and you'd rather talk about God and be rejected than live the sad kind of life where you're so terrified of being rejected by people that you never talk about the most precious thing in the universe. You never talk about the gospel. Listen, this is what I want for you. I just want you to live this kind of life where you fear God above everything else in this world because whatever you fear most will control you. It's true in every area of your life, every area of your discipleship. This is why Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 puts it this way. It says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. I want to explain this final verse to you as we close. Our band's going to make their way up. I think this is so significant. It says that the fear of man that we talked about all night, this fear of people's opinions, this fear of awkwardness, the fear of confrontation, the fear of rejection, the fear of your mom, the fear of your best friend, the fear of society and culture, that fear will prove to be a snare. Like in other words, it's going to trap you. It's going to suck you in and you're going to think it's the right way to live and the right way to be and the right way to act in this world, but it's going to trap you. And it's ultimately never going to give anything to you. It's only going to rob from you. But then what does the back half of the verse say? The fear of man proves to be a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord, whoever fears God, whoever fears the Lord, whoever says, God, I want to fear you above the opinions of every other person in this world. What does it say? They'll be kept safe. Isn't this an interesting thought? Like, here's what it says. You know what the safest thing for you to do in this entire world is? Fear God more than other people's opinions. That is the exact opposite of what you think is true. See, a lot of us think the safest thing to do is to actually live in such a way that we fit in with the culture around us. Because if we just fit in perfectly with everyone else and no one ever disapproves of us, then we'll kind of fit in with the crowd and that'll feel safe. And that would feel safe if it weren't for the great promise of the Bible that there will come a day where Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, he will crack the sky and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and every knee will bow before him. And on that day, the safest thing for you to have possibly done, the best thing for you to have possibly done is to fear God more than you fear the opinions of others. Because there will come a day where you stand in judgment before God. And on that day, I know what you'll wish you have done. You'll wish you had looked at God and feared him more than you feared the opinion of your sister, of your dad, of your college professor, of your colleague at work, of your roommate at school, of the person in your life who is most vehemently against your faith. And child of God, I want to plead with you to fear God more than you fear the opinions of man because the fear of man will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, I wanna thank you for tonight. I wanna thank you for our time over the last couple of weeks in the book of Acts. God, I wanna pray that we would be a church where people walk in and have fear of you, God. Not just a reverence, not just an awe, not just a respect, but we would have a fear that says you are God and we are not. Even as we sing right now, God, I pray we wouldn't sing flippantly. I pray we wouldn't sing just thinking this is religious routine. God, help us to fear you in such a way that we do not fear the opinions, rejection, confrontation, or pushback of others. God, help us to be courageous in a world that tells us to sit down. Help us to stand up, to praise you, to love you, to trust you, and to fear you above all things. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.